0: And this is why I always say to women, if you don't find a way to articulate what you've contributed, then over time you will come to be underrecognized, you will feel undervalued, and over time you will disengage from having the ability to contribute. It can be a perfect job for you, but if you feel deeply unappreciated and underrecognized, you will lose your passion for that job.
1: Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here.
2: I first encountered Sally Helgeson's work through the book that she wrote with Marshall Goldsmith called How Women Rise. It's now a book that I recommend often. While there are biases and glass ceilings that women can't seem to get free from entirely, there are ways in which we can get stuck in a rut in our roles without advancing in the ways that we might like. In How Women Rise, Sally outlines the tendencies and habits that keep us stuck. These include reluctance to claim achievements, expecting others to spontaneously notice and reward our contributions overvaluing expertise, the perfection trap, the disease to please, minimizing, ruminating, and a good handful of others. Does that list feel familiar? Perhaps all too familiar. Many of these patterns can have deep roots. Ultimately, these patterns can keep us stuck in the role of doer versus the role of leader. And the key question to ask yourself when you identify any of these habits in yourself is, what does having that do for me? How is this way of showing up in the world serving me? Sally's writing on women and leadership offers us a new model of leadership based on a unique set of values. No matter who you are, the opportunities in our own growth as humans and leaders is towards the actualization of who we are finding our true path in life, and our true voice. In many ways, her work asks, how do your talents and experiences make you uniquely suited to the task you have chosen to do in your life? What is it that makes your leadership style yours? Enjoy.
1: What does it mean to build organizations of belonging? how can you build an organization safe enough for the whole human to show up at work? In Reboot's newest email course, we discover the hidden power and privilege that can pervade an organization and consider what is needed beyond the HR trends and into matters of the heart to create and sustain real places of belonging for all employees. Compiled and created by the Reboot team of coaches and facilitators, this course is a conversation around the question, how can you contribute to creating an inclusive culture of belonging? The course will unfold via a series of six emails full of content, one email per day over six days. And we hope by the end of the course, you have a sense on how you can relate to belonging to yourself, how you create belonging in your communities, work, home, and life. To learn more and to sign up for free, head to reboot.io inclusivity.
2: Sally, good morning. Thank you for joining us today. I'm delighted to have you with us, and I think this is going to be a delightful conversation and worthwhile conversation for a lot of our audience members who identify as women. I would love for you to maybe introduce yourself a little bit and tell us a bit about the work you do these days and and maybe how you got started into this work.
0: Oh, sure. Uh, I'm Sally Helgeson, and uh, for 35 years, my primary mission has been to help women leaders and aspiring women leaders that we're not just talking about positional power here, but we're talking about women who seek to exert influence and have impact all around the world uh, to recognize, articulate and act on their greatest strengths and also to identify what some of the internal barriers are that could hold them back. So that has been the focus of my work for all these decades in the service of doing this, I've written eight books and thousands and thousands of workshops and lectures in 38 countries around the world, previously in person, now of course in virtual since March of 2020, and done a lot of consulting with big companies and, and organizations like the UN that have have sought to more strategic use of women's skills. My impact has been as uh, an author, a speaker, and a leadership coach and consultant. But I got into this, I had been in the 80s, uh, first I was a journalist and then I was in corporate communications. And what I saw was I worked in very good companies in corporate communications, but what I saw is they had absolutely no idea of the kind of skills and ideas the women could be contributing. This was back in the 80s. And the whole message women kept getting was, you know, sort of leave your values at home. Uh, if it moves, salute it, imitate the male leadership style and try to fit in and, and then maybe you can make a contribution as well. And I felt that this was pretty poor advice women were getting. And also I saw firsthand how much women had to contribute. Sometimes I felt like I heard the best ideas when I was in the ladies' lounge, um, which used to be a place where people went to smoke, if you can imagine, back in the 1980s. So I was determined to bring a little bit of awareness to organizations of what women could be contributing by uh, outlining what their strengths were. And I decided to study some of the most successful women in the country at that time, women who saw being a woman as part of their success, not women who said, well, yeah, I'm I'm successful, but being a woman has nothing to do with it. Because I wanted to get a sense of, you know, what is that female energy, that female uh, orientation, that female vision that, that women can really can bring to their organizations. So in the first book in this field, I've written other books, but in the first book in this field, uh, The Female Advantage, Women's Ways of Leadership, I profiled um, for women in the U.S. I would have loved to do it globally, but didn't have the budget, and uh, looked at their leadership style. And I think the timing was fantastic because it was really the first book that looked at what women had to contribute to organizations rather than how they needed to change and adapt, which had been the theme of everything written in the 80s, academic or popular. And uh, so companies started having me in and having me in to speak to their women or can you work with our women, et cetera. And I thought, well, this is more interesting writing my own speeches than writing speeches for executives. So I left that work and pretty much went full time in uh, early 1990, supporting the female advantage. And since then, I've just continued to expand that, write more books on the subject of women's leadership and inclusive leadership, uh, and uh, and and do programs around that programs around those books. So that was really, it came out of an observation. It came out of something I noticed, which is that organizations were not very good at using the talents of the women that they had.
2: Yeah. And I love how you have tracked this kind of through the the past few decades. And I was reading, I believe it was, it must've been The Female Advantage, or maybe it was The Female Vision, but there was one right before How Women Rise came out where you were talking about some of these things. I had to go look at the published date to be like, is this still actually happening in this, like in the two (laughs) thousands, you know? So it was really, really interesting. Um, Have
0: you, what have you seen change or have you seen anything change? Oh, I've seen things change tremendously, tremendously. Um, There are a number of ways that they've changed. Women have gained much more confidence much more confidence in what they have to contribute Uh, and really often define what they want their legacy or their achievements to be based on that. So there's just a much more confident, would I say that their average woman in an organization is as confident uh, of her skills and her right to contribute as the average man? No, but the increase is exponential. Secondly, women have much more solidarity with one another. This was a real issue in the 80s and still in the 90s. In the 90s, I was doing programs for uh, big uh, corporate clients and they were women's leadership programs and they were determined to get some of the more senior women to uh, contribute and to be part of the program. Senior women, for the most part, not always, didn't want anything to do with it. And you would hear them say things like, I want people to see me as a leader, not as a woman. And uh, they felt that 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 wasn't you know going to be helpful for their careers to get to identified with uh, as a woman (laughs) good luck but uh, Mm -hmm. what was interesting is that really changed and what I see now is women view supporting other women not only as a good thing to do and a smart thing to do but a good career move and a way of positioning themselves and gaining visibility and gaining allies and then that's the third thing that I've watched changed which is women are much more intentional about enlisting support and allies still got a way to go And then this new sort of men as allies movement that's evolved in the last couple of years, I think, has ramped that up. Um, Men who are interested in supporting, championing, mentoring, and supporting women have really gotten involved. I generally see um, often 30, even more percent men participating in women's leadership programs that are open. And that was very rare in the past. Um, so I think that, and women seem to recognize that, that we need a broad spectrum of allies rather than just a a small cohort of people who have believed in us from the beginning in order to, uh, to build careers that are really satisfying and have impact.
2: Mm, That's amazing. Mm. Um, in one of the books you mentioned too, how, you know, there is this this feminine way of, of, of leadership. And while the books are focused on that, there's this little caveat that you mentioned, which is, but, uh, there are plenty of men that I've encountered. I'm paraphrasing, you know, that also see this and say, I value this way of leadership as well. And,
0: uh, I don't know. I'm curious if you could say a little bit more about that. Certainly, what I've seen has been an evolution here, which I think is one of the most under-remarked and under-acknowledged changes that's happened in our culture in the last 30 years. And that is, fairly broadly, excellence in leadership is more and more defined by characteristics that, say, back in 1990, when The Female Advantage was published, were dismissed as soft skills, not leadership skills. Things like listening, mm-hmm. like the ability to um, motivate and empathize with people and, and lead in a more inclusive way. This is recognized not everywhere, of course, and there are some spectacular examples of men mm-hmm. who and some women who aren't like this, but uh, but how we perceive excellence in leadership has really evolved, and it is a much more um, traditionally female model than was true back in the 1980s when, you know, everybody was trying to copy Jack Welch, whose nickname was Neutron Jack, and whose idea was, you know, you just identify all you need to do is cut the fat relentlessly, meaning his employees he was talking about, and um, maximize shareholder value at all costs. Now it turns out that there were some real issues around that. So that's what I see. I, I don't hear from, you know, male leaders who are recognized as, you know, superb leaders. I don't hear that kind of hero worship of those gotta be tough, gotta, you know, gotta bottom line it in every situation. I don't see that. And there are exceptions of course, but that's to me been a huge and significant change. And I, I think that it's not recognized and it's certainly not recognized the extent to which women have influenced, uh, that change. You see the, the leadership heroes of the last decade, Alan Mulally at, uh, at Ford, Bill George, at Medtronics, et cetera, very much in line with this. So that's been a, that's been a fascinating thing to watch from my perspective.
2: Yeah, we, um, here at Reboot, we say, uh, well, Jerry, Jerry will say, well, I guess we all do, but, uh, you know, better humans make better leaders and better leaders create more humane organizations. And, you know, just to kind of bring this just to the, the, the base level of humanity, like there's, there's something so humane about those quote, unquote soft skills, you know, like listening and clear communication and the inclusivity piece, like all those, those threads and layers that, that weave, you know, a culture of, you know, belonging and, and safety really.
0: Yeah, exactly, and you see this in the fantastic work Amy Edmondson has done on psychological safety in the workplace, how important that is, and and I think it's it's also fascinating to watch that when I talk about how this is spread to companies, um, that's true, but it's also spread to the militaries of advanced Western countries as well. That. These kinds of principles about motivation and care and listening and supporting are inculcated in those organizations as well at the top levels. And it's really fascinating to watch, especially right now when we're seeing an example of how that contrasts to a a country where there's so hierarchical and absolutely no care for their own soldiers. So it's it's very interesting and I've I've watched, you know, the first letter that I got for the female advantage because it was back in the days when, you know, people wrote your publisher and the publisher sent on the letter in its envelope. The first letter mm-hmm. I got was from General Perry Smith at the at the um at the National War College in Stone Mountain, Georgia, talking about how important all this information was for soldier training and that just kicked things off. I've, I've had the opportunity to do, do a lot of work in, in the military services broadly. And um, so I, I, I see that. And uh, Sandy Stotes, who was the first woman who was a superintendent of the military uh, academy of the uh, U.S. Coast Guard Academy, so on pier with West Point and Annapolis, Uh, the first woman. And she brought these characteristics so much into the U.S. Coast Guard and other military academy leaders have since credited her with beginning to change some of what's perceived of as excellence in leadership of a service academy as well. So there's been this big, big impact, and I don't think it really gets recognized sufficiently.
2: I I love this so much. And I love that how you're kind of in a way, kind of writing the paradigm shift in some way, you know, as you're researching and, and tracking this, and and as a woman, you know, in in the workforce and as a woman leader, I feel like I've I've benefited from some of this as well. So so you've written so many books on women in leadership. In so many of them, well, in in at least you know a few, it, it emphasizes the way the ways of leading that women just kind of naturally have. Um, or these kind of qualities of leadership that women naturally have um, that that for the longest time was so contrary to that more dominant model right that you were citing like that was yeah. just so so big and prevalent back in the 80s in, in that model now is being challenged in so many ways what are some of these things that are worth highlighting that women that women who are listening might, know about themselves or know about how they they show up or or feel into the their leadership or how they know the world that um, I don't know if they heard this they might
0: feel a little bit validated or vindicated or something. I think that's really important to do is to connect the dots because after all, in order to have, for this work to have impact that I've been doing, it's not just about big observations about how the world is changing or how open a variety of institutions are to this. It's about what women can take away that can help them, as I said at the beginning, recognize, articulate, and act on their greatest strength. And I think that in a way the word articulate is the bridge there, and, and in that way of being a bridge, almost the most important word. Because w- in my experience, having done so many thousands of workshops, women often have a good sense of what they're good at. They have a good sense that they're good at motivating. They've seen how their team responds to a certain kind of orientation or a way they express something. They see the value in concrete terms, that being able to listen to their people provides. They see the value of being able to bring uh, aspects of their personal and private or domestic experience into the workplace, uh, and they, they see how valuable that is. They see, they recognize firsthand um, how much value uh, diversity can provide because they themselves have been outsiders, so they recognize what condescending behaviors and expectations feel like. But they also know the kind of value that having fresh eyes on a program, on a on a problem, can provide. So there are all these aspects of leadership that they understand. And that they may talk about with their friends, you know, like, I thought I was better at doing that than, you know, this guy who got appointed. But the key is being able to really articulate those in a very clear and a very succinct way that also uh, gives some specific reason that they're important to the organization, to the team, to the larger enterprise, not just to the world in general, but specifically being able to articulate what their value is. And so that's why I try to work with women on having a very intentional style in their leadership. And that often starts with lots and lots of thinking about, you know, what are my skills? How can I... Uh, describe those skills? How can I describe the value that those skills can bring to this particular situation and what some of the potential outcomes would be? So that part of articulating your greatest strengths is the bridge between recognizing them and being able to act on them because you want to act on them in a way that is very clear but also brings a degree of attention to what you're doing. You, you want to have that visibility for what you're doing, not just because it will probably make you more successful, which in most cases it will. In other cases, it could, could not work where you are. And that would give you information that mm, maybe this is the wrong place. But as long as you're able to be very clear about what you're doing, why you're doing it, and what the value is, and why you're the right person to do it, Uh, then you will position yourself to have visibility around that. And that visibility is important for you in your career. It's important for other women coming up. And it really gives other women more confidence in what they have to contribute. When I wrote The Female Advantage, the most common thing I heard from women was, what you've shown me is that I have a leadership style. I didn't know I had a leadership style. I thought it was just how I did things and I didn't know if it was right. But now I can see it as a leadership style. So I think that's a very important question for every woman who feels any degree of uncertainty or even women who feel a lot of certainty. You know, what is my leadership style? What are its characteristics? And why is it so important in the situation that we're in? How will it add value? That's the thing we want We want to do. It doesn't have to be highly quantified or, you know, we will increase customer contact by X, X point, uh, et cetera, although that's fine as well. But it can really be about, you know, building the capacity of the organization, making the team more fit for what it's doing. So thinking through those things and being able to articulate them with intention and clarity, I think is is key, and that's an ongoing uh, uh, enterprise
2: yeah, uh, and one of those things that I know many of my clients uh, don't even think about right like, well, what is that leadership style, much like much like you were saying and the other thing that i one of the things where I, I find women get stuck in one of the places where i I, I promptly recommend that they read how women rise is so many women, they, there's something about being an exceptional doer (laughs) and, um, they, they're so good at doing things and taking care of so many things. And there's, there's some belief that, Oh, someone will see all these amazing things I'm doing. And then therefore promote me. Like, why am I not being up? Why am I not up for this promotion? And as you kind of note, you know, in How Women
0: Rise, in a lovely, lovely chapter, <laughs> um, that's kind of a trap where we, we get stuck. It's a big trap. And I'll tell you, you know, when I do programs that are one hour or 90 minutes, as opposed to full-fledged workshops where I work on all 12 of the habits and behaviors in How Women Rise... Um, I usually send out a questionnaire to the client in advance and say, can you poll the people who will be in this program and see which of the habits and behaviors they most identify with? So they'll do three or four. I don't know that I have ever done that poll where one of the three or four items has not been that habit number two that you're referencing, which is expecting others to spontaneously notice And value our contributions. I'm going to say it again. Expecting others to spontaneously notice and value our contributions. When women are reluctant to do what we were talking about, be very clear in articulating what their contribution is. They, they they're often reluctant they may have had a negative response in the back well you're pretty aggressive or you don't seem to lack confidence you know in a very condescending way they may have had someone say uh you seem pretty ambitious you know whatever it is whatever kind of pushback they're getting they'll yeah. internalize that of yep. course rather than you know they they may also think what a jerk but they'll internalize that and think well how better not you know is that the, the The most common question I get from women, number one is how can I talk about my achievements without appearing too aggressive or all about me or without undermining what my team has contributed? That's the other concern women will have. If I talk about this as my achievement, I know it's embedded in the team. So how can I do that? You know, how can I recognize we're supposed to be working as a team and I'm talking about my achievements? I don't see how that works. So these are these are reasons that will hold women back. And I'll address both of those in a moment. But because they are uncertain or lack, you know, real confidence in how to talk about what they've achieved or contributed, they default to a passive hope that other people will notice. And I've heard this for 30 plus years. I believe that if I do great work, Mm -hmm. people will notice. Or I believe that if I do great work, people should notice. Um, And they should, Mm -hmm. probably, but they don't. You know, we're all busy, and especially in the virtual world, even harder. Uh, So everyone needs to take responsibility for bringing attention to what they've contributed for themselves, but also for other women coming up. That's really, really important to learn how to do that. And a couple of things that I find really helpful is using what I call, and this really isn't in the book, I've more evolved it since, the language of contribution, where you are you speak mm. in terms of your contribution, not like, well, I did that, or I achieved this, or et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this can solve the problem with a team, too, you know, our team was able to achieve incredible results with this. For example, one, two, three, my contribution was, it's not an either or, it's not either you or your team. You can talk about what your team did, but you always want to also be clear about what you contributed. And use, again, using that language of contribution, I was, you know, I aim to contribute this in this job. This is what I would like my contribution to be here. Uh, I feel like I was able to contribute in this way. Here's something I contributed. Women are more comfortable generally using that language because it's more realistic an understanding of how they perceive um, their actions, that they're part of a larger effort, not just them. But you don't want to get lost in the process. And, you know, we see women do it all the time. I'm sure you have wow, that was a great job. Oh, it wasn't me. It was my team. That's not going to, that's not helpful really to either you or your team. And it's certainly not helpful uh, to women coming up. You want to be able to set an example of someone who can speak comfortably and clearly and accurately about what you contributed. And women will often, I don't want to be like that jerk down the hall who's always talking about, uh, you know how great he is. Well, don't worry about that. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about making sure that your contributions get recognized.
2: I'm thinking of so many women in my life. In in listening to you, I was also thinking about my mom, who's never had a uh, well. We will say a quote quote real job, um, you know, within corporate America or or anything. You know, she was just just an amazing mother. But she embedded in her is, is this element of, um, oh, it's not me. Um, oh, it's not me. Everything else happened, you know, kind of conspired to make this thing happen. But there's this other thread, too, which is really heavy, which is, oh, I do so much. How come nobody sees it? You know, so there's, there's both of those elements. Um, so it's interesting to kind of see those just even outside the workplace.
0: You know, in They're terms of very some of the things that yeah. women can carry. They're very, very deep. deep. It's the kind of martyrish, you know, feeling. Well, and, and that's what happens when you expect other people to notice. When you put the responsibility yes. onto them, they often don't notice. So it becomes something that is in the service of your endless being disappointed in other people. How does that serve you? If your actions continue to make you disappointed in other people, whether it's as, you know, in an organization, in your community, uh, in a nonprofit, a volunteer position you're part of, with your children, with your husband, uh, if you are unwilling to step up and let them know what you've contributed, and this is why I always say to women, this is one of the most important things that you can learn to do because if you don't find a way to articulate what you've contributed then over time you will come to feel under you will come to be under recognized you will feel undervalued and you will disengage over time you will disengage as uh, 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 from having the ability to contribute it can be a perfect job for you but if you feel deeply unappreciated and underrecognized you will lose your passion for that job so we really have a responsibility to be able to do this and falling into any kind of you know well i guess you know i was really able to do something there but nobody could see it you know you don't want to say that unless you know you gave it your absolute best shot to get recognized and to articulate what the purpose is and you see it in families you see it in nonprofits you see it across the board
2: yeah and you said something earlier which i think is really worth highlighting there and that is it, even if you are as a as a woman articulating and clearly stating your contributions and and how what influence and impact you are having and that's not being received in the organization or the culture that you're in
0: that's information It's good information, and I'm glad you brought up that word information because that's another thing. When you feel awkward about talking about what you've contributed, try to frame it as information that could be helpful to that other person. That could help them do their job. uh, That could be useful rather than, oh, well, that's going to be bragging. No, it's not necessarily bragging. If you made a certain contribution on an effort... It's helpful to people to know what you did. They'll know how to evaluate you. They're, they'll know what you might be good at that you're not being developed in. Um, they'll know who, who, who helped you. The other thing is, and you really need to be able to do this well and with skill, you need allies because you don't want to be the only person talking about what you contributed so you need to let other people know what you're doing. You need to talk them up and they talk you up. And, and you know, that's that's how a lot of successful men got where they are. They had allies who talked them up and they talked those guys up as well. And uh, women are often less eager to do that for whatever reason, or it's just a a, a skill, a sort of chop that they haven't developed as much. There more and more women are really developing that. So that's, you know, another thing that I've watched real progress here. And that's part of the solidarity I was referring to earlier.
2: Yeah, cool. Um, Because you said something earlier about being, you know, women being that there's that kind of martyr tendency, right? And uh, women, I feel that they have this um, uh, ability to, you know, become invisible uh, with all that they do, uh, and the ways in which they expect, you know, others to see that. And without that recognition, they feel unrecognized and then even more invisible, you know, in the background. But and to go to kind of look at maybe a deeper pattern of that and, and to, to lift up a different model for for how maybe uh, women could aspire or feel into what is this new model for me that I that I could leverage if I if I do find that behavior or that tendency in myself uh, for martyrdom or uh, waiting for someone to notice me, etc. Um, in, in the female advantage, at the very end, it's it's the last few pages, you talk about um uh a symbol, um a, a Jungian symbol, actually, that um Carol Pearson um talks about. And instead of the martyr, um where um, obviously the individual is kind of erased. The The alternative I- image or symbol is, is that of the magician. And if I could read something here, maybe it'll kind of spark some of this. But uh, the magician incorporates the martyr's emphasis on care and serving others with the warrior's ability to affect his environment by the exercise of discipline, struggle, and will. Thus, the magician knows how to sacrifice and give care without losing personal identity and how to work hard to achieve something without getting caught up in an unceasing competitive struggle. It's a really, uh, this whole chapter is just, these final pages are just so potent, I think, in terms of that image and that model for women, especially
0: Yeah, I think this is really moving beyond the kind of dualism that, you know, very gendered thinking has has created, where on one hand we have women who are the self-sacrificers who are giving everything up, and that's becoming behavior for women. And this is, by the way, why when women try to step out they'll get tagged as overly aggressive they'll get tagged as you know overly ambitious there were somebody some journalists pointed out the number of citations that put the word Hillary Clinton with ambition ambitious when she was running mm-hmm. and it was unbelievable it was off the charts there were even thousands of references to her as pathologically ambitious because she was running for president so I think that you know, that attempting to assume leadership at a big level and being very clear about what you can contribute often makes certain people uncomfortable because they feel like you should be back in a role where you're sacrificing yourself so that others can make this contribution. And we often internalize that. So exhibiting anything like uh, ambition, which is a warrior um a warrior characteristic is then seen, I think, as unfeminine and and ultimately as unmotherly. You know, this would be a terrible mother, somebody mm-hmm. putting her own interests above those of her children. So it 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 stirs discomfort, and I think this is a beaut- this image of the mu- magician, which Carol Pearson, who writes a lot of books with Jungian archetypes, uh, came up with, is just beautiful because it says no, we don't either have to be the self-sacrificer, or, you know, the heroic warrior forging our own path without concern for others, which was the old sort of non-inclusive leadership model I was talking about that was so prevalent uh, during the 1980s. We don't have to choose between those two. We can exhibit care for the community, care for those who we're responsible for, whether it's in an organization, in a family, or the community. We can exhibit that care, but do it in a way that has some level of, of warrior capability and not apologize for that warrior side because that warrior side is, is is also about protecting the community so we can give care and we can protect. And I think that that's something that I see the the, the strongest and most inspiring female leaders, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is one example. She exhibited both that sort of grit and toughness of the warrior um, with that care for the community. We saw that um, in the recent uh, court uh, hearings on Katanji Brown. We saw that as well. I mean, I saw her, I saw mm-hmm. this warrior, and this is someone who gives care of the community.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's um, I think that's a lovely note to end on because I think that is truly one of the greatest gifts that women can bring, uh, but also a beautiful image of leadership in general. Um, I don't want to just, again, relegate this to those who identify as women, but for those that do, um, I think that model is um, is worth kind of picking up and,
0: and, and living into. Exactly. And what you say is exactly right. It's not a gendered model. So it doesn't matter. We don't need yeah. to get hung up to identify as a woman, as a man, something else. Who cares? The point is the magician is an archetype that is open to the human race. It's a universal model. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: well, Sally, thank you so much um, I know you have to run, and this has been beyond lovely and very, um, very juicy.
0: Well, thank you, Ellie. I'd really forgotten that entire ending of the female advantage, and I agree with you that it's very powerful. And um, so I'm going to come back to thinking about that and how that adapts to um, the work I do and the work I'll do in the future.
2: Yeah, thank you.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, head to reboot.io slash podcast to explore past and present seasons of our podcast conversations. To help more people find and enjoy the Reboot podcast, consider leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find our step-by-step guide for leaving reviews in the show notes of each episode. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you'll never miss an episode. Thank you for listening.
2: gets it right.
1: We often talk about the work of rebooting your leadership as individual work you can't do alone. If each member of your leadership team is pursuing the work of self-inquiry and actualization, that's wonderful. But to create the company that you'd all like to work for, you must also create the opportunity for the collective to grow. Experiences like facilitated leadership groups, off-site retreats, organizational change explorations, and immersive leadership trainings move the organization closer to its fullest expression of the inherent values. At Reboot, we're here to support you and your team members in bringing forth the best that you have, using everything that emerges from organizational life, both the challenges and successes, as opportunities to grow. Head to reboot.io slash team experiences to learn more and more about Reboot's virtual and in-person team offerings.